I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, and then we're going to celebrate pride as we've been doing so all across Good Faith Media. And then later on the pod, we're going to visit with Nathan Russell, who is a pastor at Washington Avenue Christian Church, who happens to be a gay man, in his words, serving a straight church. So it is a delightful conversation. Stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are things in your world? Things are rainbow-filled and happy in our world. It, it is, is Pride, Pride Month. Woohoo! Yes, <laughs> there are celebrations going on. Um, it's been interesting to see. We live in Oklahoma, which is you know not always the progressive capital of the universe, and uh, there have been first ever pride parades and pride celebrations this month in some of the tiniest little podunk towns. So it's exciting. It is exciting. Well, you know, we've been uh, featuring uh, LGBTQ columnists this uh, month uh, during pride at uh, Good Faith Media. As we Media. do all year. <laughs> well, of course, right? <laughs> of course, of course. But they have been addressing uh, LGBTQ right issues, yes. uh, rights uh, this month in celebration of pride and why it's important for the church uh, to celebrate uh, pride as well and the and we just had some just wonderful columnists um uh, Kendall Ray Rathus uh, wrote an article this week at Good Faith or at uh, goodfaithmedia.org uh talking about the importance of pride uh, just did a, a fabulous job. Of course, she's the co-host of Discovering Wholeness uh, that we produce. Uh, check out their uh, season one. Uh, season two is in pre-production. We're excited about that. But she just did a fantastic job outlining the importance of pride and why it should be a value in the local church. And then next week, uh, Jenna Sullivan is going to be uh, releasing an article on Monday on the website, uh, again, in celebration of pride. And Jenna, along with her cohort, uh, Ashley Robinson, are the co-host of a brand new podcast that's going to be released in July called Revs on the Road. So we're just, we've got all kinds of great, exciting things happening here at Good Faith Media. And just happens that, you know, we are very supportive and affirming of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. We just love them and appreciate everything that they bring to the table, uh, not only on uh, LGBTQ rights, but just everything else they bring to the table. Their mm -hmm. insights on theological issues, on social issues, on ministry issues. They're just amazing, amazing people. And just think what we would miss out on if they weren't at the table. Just mm -hmm. really disheartening. Yeah, and I think some people may be like, 
well, of course you're celebrating pride. Why wouldn't you be? But the situation is that there are a lot of communities of faith who don't celebrate folks um, who identify as LGBTQ+, and it is harmful. And so as a faith-based media organization, it is important for us to loudly and proudly fly our rainbow flags and make sure that our voice is out there as the counter narrative. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'm very honest about it. In fact, I wrote about it, I think, last year during Pride. Um, this didn't happen for me. Uh, and what I mean by that, me becoming supportive and affirming of LGBTQ folks, uh, it didn't happen overnight for me. I mean, I grew up in a very fundamentalist uh, mindset, uh, you know, churches and uh, communities that I was a part of. Uh, really decried the LGBT community, talked about the gay agenda, talked about the immorality of it all, believed that being gay was a choice and that they had made the wrong choice, uh, that all they needed was Jesus and they could pray the gay away. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the world I grew up in, which I think a lot of people grew up in. But then all of a sudden, you know, as I got older and began to understand, actually began to realize that some of the friends that I grew up with were gay. I didn't know it because I hadn't come out at the time. And I realized, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with these people. <laughs> they are who they are. They just happen to be gay. And it's not a choice because you hear story after story after story after story. And as a pastor, I would hear these in my study all the time. Individuals coming to me and saying, you know, I, I don't want to be gay because the world treats me like crap because I am gay. That I've known since I was a child that I'm gay or I'm transgender. And I've kept that hidden because of the way the world and the church has treated gay people and transgender people. But I just want you to know that I'm gay or transgender. And so after hearing that story over and over again, it just solidified in my mind and in my heart that this is the way God made people. I mean... Even Lady Gaga said it. <laughs> that's right. And that, to me, is gospel, really. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, she could be the Holy Spirit uh, incarnated. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so what I hear you saying, Mitch, is that you used to think one way. You encountered people who were the other. You listened to what they said. And you changed what you thought. Yeah, and not only that, that relationship challenged me to educate myself mm -hmm. uh, because I, I knew what my heart was saying. My heart was saying, these people, these people are ordinary people. God loves them. Um, I love them. They need to be exactly who they are in life mm -hmm. uh, and, and be celebrated for that and honored because of that. But my theological background, my ecclesiastic or my um, my church environment at the time, everything I'd been taught told me otherwise. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do when my heart started tugging on, I started to work on my mind, and so I started. I returned to the scriptures. I started reading books. I started trying to figure out, okay, what what I was told is was that correct, or is there another way? to interpret and look at scripture that I have missed. And it's not only on this issue. I've done this on many different issues. I think it would be a disservice to anyone to be as a Christian to just keep thinking the way you 
think for yeah. decade upon decade. We are supposed to grow. We are, God wants us to know more about the divine, know more about the divine ways, how God relates to the world. And it's kind of like I'm in a relationship with God. i am got a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's like on the day I married my wife, what if I just said, that's it? That's all we're going to know about one another, and we shouldn't do anything to nurture this relationship going forward. This is the way it's always going to be. That's, you wouldn't still be together. <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean, it's day-to-day day right now. <laughs> it's not. It's not. <laughs> you know, and so the same thing goes with God, and so I want to know more about God. So when my heart started pulling me in the direction of being aff- affirmative or uh, affirming LGBTQ uh, individuals, I started working on my head. And so I, I started doing research and reading and, and praying and, and, and really, what does the scripture say about this issue? And what I discovered, it's very nuanced. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, the word homosexuality is not in the Bible. It's not in any translation of the Bible. If you see it in English translation, mark it out because it ain't there. It does not exist. And then when you start looking at text that deal primarily with sodomy, it wasn't the act of sodomy that they were decrying. It was the act of, uh, of uh, being oppressive because sex is an act of power. Mm-hmm. And when someone exerts sexual behavior over another person, it's usually in a case of rape, but also it's a case of exerting a power over someone. And like in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, I've always, my mind's always been blown by that because as a child, I was taught, well, it's because, you know, they were wanting to sodomize the two messengers. Oh, 100%. It was the only time the church would talk about sex. Right. But the reality is that wasn't the case at all. Mm -hmm. Um, they, They may have wanted to have their way with the messengers, but it was the reason it was an illustration for their unrighteousness because they were not hospitable which is the ultimate shame in that culture. They were not welcoming. They were not affirming of them as guests because in that culture, when a stranger or sojourner entered your presence, you had an obligation to show them grace and generosity. Well, the town of Sodom and Gomorrah did not do that uh, because right before the town gets destroyed and, and the crowd does come to Lot and say, hey, give us the strangers. We want to have our way with them. You know what he does? I don't remember. He offers his daughters. That checks out. And so if you follow the biblical narrative, Lot's the righteous one. Is that righteous? (laughs) To just say, hey, you can have my girls. (laughs) We just kind of skip over that part. Yeah, and they do. They skip right over it. They skip right over it. And so you start looking at the, the... what these texts say, and they don't say what I what they I was told that they say, mm-hmm. and they can be interpreted and should be interpreted in uh, in light of what's going on culturally and textually uh, in these passages. And so, once my heart aligned with my mind, uh, I just it was a, it was a, an, an awakening uh, mm-hmm. for me, and it was like you know now I can without any any hesitation say. I am affirming of LGBTQ uh, individuals. I think they need to be treated with human dignity and have the same rights as any individual that lives on this world. 
I would say the same thing for the church. I have officiated same-sex marriages um, and not hold... I just, I believe they're just, they are people who need to be celebrated for who they are. Mm-hmm. And that's why we celebrate pride at Good Faith Media. Yep, we do. And we'll continue to. Absolutely. So get your rainbow flag out there and fly it proudly. Well, what else is going on in the news? Autumn, have you heard anything else? There's been some sad news from a topic we visited a few weeks ago about the native school in Canada where they started finding... Um, graves and bodies and Mm -hmm. so they released a a pretty staggering number this morning on the news yeah first nations in canada have found 751 unmarked graves at a former residential school uh there in uh uh, in canada and it's on top of the 250 uh graves that they found earlier in the year uh, outside of vancouver um, it Canada is is rocked by this. They just they, mm-hmm. and and unfortunately, I think that they're going to find more unmarked graves as they do more investigation of these indigenous schools. Uh, I saw uh, yesterday where the Biden administration announced that there's going to be an inquiry into indigenous boarding schools here in the United States. Good, uh, which I'm I'm excited and terrified at. Yeah, at the same yeah. time. Because as l- the listeners may know, uh, my great-grandmother was a resident at one of these boarding schools. I am Muskogee Creek, uh, citizen of the Muskogee Creek tribe here in Oklahoma. Uh, my great-grandmother and her sister, uh, Eloise Boutinot is my great-grandmother. Her sister, Ruby, uh, lived at Shalako Boarding School between 1915 and 1917. Uh, and they just shared atrocious stories of their experience there. And so I had the honor uh, of going up there the other day. In fact, I wrote a story about it in Nurturing Faith Journal uh, that you can subscribe to uh, on the website at goodfaithmedia.org this month or in this issue. And I was able to tour where my great-grandmother and her sister lived during 1915-1917. And as I was touring the campus, uh, the uh, caretaker who was there, who was also Native, said, hey, you may want to go check the cemetery out. And he pointed down a dirt road. So I drove down this dirt road by myself, and up on this hill, the beautiful little piece of land, was this quaint little cemetery. Uh, and so I, I walked up to it very respectfully and noticed right away that there were some gravestones that were laid out. I looked about you know, about 30 to 40 gravestones, with one of the gravestones uh, being quite a bit larger and protruding out of the ground than the others. So as I wanted to go pay my respects and offer prayers uh, at this site, uh, I entered into the cemetery and I noticed that all of the stones that were embedded in the ground and the earth uh, had no markings on them whatsoever. They were just Mm. stones. But then when I got to the larger headstone that was protruding out of the earth, it had a name, had parents, uh, and come to find out that grave was from a child uh, of a teacher. So it was a white student. So it was just an incredible image for me that depicted what happened during that time Mm -hmm. uh, at Shalako. But now with the, the news coming out of Canada with all these unmarked graves, 250 at one site, 751 at another, I'm wondering when they do the investigation of these indigenous schools, these boarding schools, 
what they're going to find. Are there mass graves at uh, these sites? Um, and we're not going to know until we investigate. So it's kind of like when we were over in Tulsa. Yeah. And you just, you never know. And what is what is terrifying is that this has been kept a secret for so long. Um, and it would have been if somebody didn't speak up and investigate it. Yes. And bodies are literally buried, but bodies are figuratively buried as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why it is so important for us to talk through the racial justice issues and the struggles and to open those lines of communication and keep them open. And even when they're awkward and even when they're hard, um, they should be hard. They mm -hmm. should be hard conversations. You should feel things. It should make you squirm. And that's the only way that we can get better and raise the next generation to do even better. Yeah. To get where we want to go, we have to know where we came from. Mm -hmm. And in many instances, especially when it comes to people of color, and indigenous people of this continent, those histories, as you just eloquently said, have been buried and forgotten, mm -hmm. but now they're being dug up. Well, what does that mean? To How does that define us today? Because that redefines us. We thought we were mm -hmm. one way, but we're not. I no. mean, you start to think about what happened to the indigenous people of North America. You start thinking about what happened. The only way America became America was through the genocide of the indigenous people and the enslavement of Africans. That's the only yep. way we got here. Yep. And so all of us have benefited from those tragedies and from that evil. Mm -hmm. So that, that redefines who we are. We didn't learn about that in elementary school. We, you know, we're just taught, you know, rah, rah America. And I love this country and I fly mm -hmm. my flag proudly. Uh, but we also have to be real about who we are because as Jefferson said, we've got to strive towards a more perfect union. We're not there. We're never going to be there, but we're mm -hmm. always striving to get better. But as we strive to get better, we also have to look back to discover where we came from that redefines who we are so that we can move forward to a better future. Yes. And to continue to use, you know, any privilege that we may have to hold space for people who are, even if their generations are moved from that trauma who still are feeling the impacts of that trauma. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and it, a lot of it boils down to money, obviously. But there were economical consequences that have been generational, have had mm -hmm. generational impact. And we learned that mm -hmm. in Tulsa when Black Wall Street was just wiped out and then, you know, forbidden to rebuild uh, by policies that the city and state inflicted upon the African-American community there. And the same can be said with indigenous people. I mean, you know, they, their lands were stolen. I mean, they were stolen. You know, they had systems in place that they lived in that were beneficial to them and to their tribes. And all of a sudden that was just taken away. And they said, oh, we're going to send you to Oklahoma. Oh, and by the way, we're going to take that land too because we discovered oil and the land you're sitting on. <laughs> and yep. it's like how, you know, that causes, that causes lasting effect generation upon generation. And so you look at the European Anglo uh, people here in the United States, they never had to go through that. I'm not saying that they didn't have barriers and issues that they, they had to struggle through. They did. Every, every, every generation and every race has their, you know, their problems and their issues. But they didn't have that. They didn't have to deal with being indigenous. They didn't have to deal with the generation uh, being brought, you know, 
stripped of their lands and being forced onto another land, and then that land taken. They didn't have to deal with enslavement. They didn't have to deal with Jim Crow and you know the injustices of the world. They just didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Redlining. I mean, all the things all the that things. we can just keep on yeah. going Again, with. it doesn't yeah. mean that they didn't have problems, but they didn't have to no. deal with that. The system was built for them. Mm-hmm by them and for them. It wasn't built for indigenous people. It wasn't built for African-Americans. So, no. so at any rate, that's, that's uh, me getting on my high horse. I'll come down now. Are you, so would you say you're pro-critical race theory then? <laughs> I think it needs to be studied. Um, you know, I, I think it's a theory like anything else, and it needs to be studied. And you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs yesterday scolded Matt Gates uh, in, in a conference saying, you know, as a military, we need to know about these things. We yeah. we need to study them. I mean, the military is made up of, you know, an abundant amount of ethnicities. And we need to study that. It would be ridiculous if we didn't. And mm-hmm. so he said, as a white man, I want to know about these things. Yeah. And, of course, Gates just shook his head because, you know, he's an idiot. But anyway, <laughs> that's another podcast. <laughs> Speaking of people who aren't idiots, our next guest, Nathan Russell, is just delightful. He is. Nathan is senior pastor of Washington Avenue Christian Church, and he's a friend of Good Faith Media, and we just had a delight visiting with him this week. So stay tuned for that interview, and happy Pride! I'm Jenna. I'm Ashley. And we are Reverends. Revs on the road. Hop in the car with us and come along for the ride. As we step out of the pulpit and see what God is up to in the world. We're not leaving the church. We're just finding it in all kinds of beautiful places. Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. We travel the country. From the comfort of our place in Dallas for now. And catch up with beautiful people doing God's work advocating for disability rights, healing from church hurt and spiritual abuse, promoting mental health and the power of community, integrating spirituality and art, working for racial justice, and so much more. We've got red light rants, pit stops, and detours. Faith is a journey and we're on it. So ride along with us, the Revs, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Revs on the Road. And go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. We start dropping episodes in June. I'm Jenna. And I'm Ashley. We're Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us today. Reverend Nathan Russell is the senior pastor of Washington Avenue Christian Church. He graduated from Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University with a Master's of Divinity with Biblical Studies and was ordained into the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. In March of 2016, Morehouse College in Atlanta inducted Reverend Russell into the Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers. Prior to attending seminary, Russell earned undergraduate and graduate degrees at West Texas A&M University and completed postgraduate work in choral conducting and music education at Michigan State University. He taught choral music at the high school and collegiate levels for seven years. And in August of 2012, Reverend Russell participated in a summer theological program at Christ Church, Oxford University. He also completed coursework towards a PhD in curriculum studies at TCU. And apart from his ministerial work, which seems extravagant, Pastor Nathan and his partner Chad enjoy an active life of music, exercise, and travel. Nathan, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It is good to be with you. Thank you for the 
gracious invitation. I'll, I hope that the person you just introduced shows up. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if he doesn't, we'll muddle through this. <laughs> uh, well, Nathan, we've been asking a lot of our guests. During pandemic, we ask uh, everybody how they were feeling. But uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, you know, how how are you feeling coming out of this? I mean, is it – Autumn and I have been talking last couple of weeks on the pod about – how strange it is. It feels like we're walking out of a cave and, you know, like people are starting to like show up in places and, you know, and, and people without masks, which is really strange uh, at this point. So how are you getting along in this post pandemic world? Hopefully. In early May, I took my first vacation in over a year and it felt like liberation. Uh, I got to go uh, back to Texas and see friends and go out to restaurants and drink good beer without masks. And uh, that was that that experience restored my soul. And uh, I got to worship at Broadway Baptist Church in Fort Worth, which is what I call my home congregation there. And uh, they had already resumed in-person worship. Uh, we had not as, as of that, that moment. So it was a foretaste of things to come. And uh, so that was an enjoyable and restorative time. But I still don't know what happened over the past 14 and a half months. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to take a long time to process what we just left and where we are going uh, because we have we have never done church we've never done life the way we're learning to do it post pandemic so we're all learning in real time none of us have done this before sure. so i find that really kind of disorienting mm -hmm. uh that i don't I, I don't have any answers. It's we're, we're just learning in, in real time at the same speed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It certainly feels like a bizarro world right now. Uh, it has been for over a year now, but uh, it just seems like it, it's an extension of that. It's going to be interesting to see a lot of people talk about returning to normal. I don't think we're going to return to normal uh, and I'm fine with not returning back to normal. I just want to new, find what the new normal, whatever that is uh, to, to, to get to and, and to begin to, to work through that. Well, Nathan, um, we appreciate you coming on the uh, the pod this week. Uh, all month of June, we've been talking about uh, pride and the importance of LGBTQ rights, and you are gay pastors, pastoring in a straight church. We're going to talk about what that means later on. I think uh, Autumn has a question for you concerning that. But we want to hear your story. I mean, last week, the Southern Baptist Convention met at their annual meeting. Uh, Good Faith Media covered that event. Uh, for some reason, we just love being tortured and yelled at and insulted. I mean, it's just one of our favorite things to do. So we decided It's to... why we had children, too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and while there were more pressing issues for the SBC this year, we did hear the proverbial mention of a radical gay agenda and all the nonsense associated with that. With that sounds kind of wonderful. Rhetoric. A radical gay agenda? <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd support that. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> And send me a copy. I, you know, I, I, I haven't gotten my membership packet yet. But when that agenda <laughs> is fortified, if you will include me, I, I'd be, I'd be most appreciative. 
I'll CC you. Don't worry about it. That's Perfect. exactly right. Perfect. The carbon copy will work. Uh, but um, recent, I mentioned that you grew up a Southern Baptist. So kind of tell us about that story and, and your experience. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first, you know, June is Pride Month, and Pride is not a liturgical season, but it should be. Amen. Uh, Amen. The, the colors are fabulous, and uh, clergy uh, love their stoles, and I, I have some great multicolored ones that uh, are really fun to wear in, in the month of June. But uh I am a gay that the Lord has made, and I needed a church that could rejoice and be glad in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, growing up a Southern Baptist uh, in deep in the heart of Texas with a father that graduated the former uh, Southwestern ba- Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, I knew from an early age that there was a, a disconnect. I did not congrue with the the bible and this went from everything to hearing the american family associations you know diatribes against disney to southern baptist convention politics and what i what i saw in my own context and and uh how my family reacted to the the changing culture uh so I was I was born on Easter Sunday, which should tell you something. Uh, and a <laughs> few years after that, uh, in 2003, so I was I was 23 years old. Um, my heart went into atrial fibrillation, and and just a few months before that, I started dating. A person of the same gender. This is first time. Uh, I'm a kind of a late bloomer. I think the average age for coming out now is 14. I was 23 when I uh, had my first uh, same-sex relationship, and so. A and few were you in te- that, Were you in Texas at this time? I was still in Texas. Okay. Yeah. Um, in uh, in Amarillo, just outside of Amarillo. Um, That's tough. Yeah. I mean, just in for, general. For many right? reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, the cow smells alone. We'll get you. The cow smell, yeah, you, you can look further and see less in Amarillo <laughs> than any other place in the world. Uh, but so I'm, uh, my heart goes into atrial fibrillation and I have to go into the emergency room where they take me by ambulance to the emergency room and they put defibrillator pads on me and shock me back into rhythm. And I remembered Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mm. And while I was in the hospital with, you know, a pulse spiking over 200 beats a minute, and they're talking about defibrillators, I thought, I'm a sinner that God is hanging over the flames of hell by Mm. a rope. And any minute, God can cut the rope or let go of the rope, and and I'm, I'm done. So I did not know what to do with that. Uh, and I remember after getting my heart back in rhythm and talking to the person I was dating, just saying, look, I can't do this anymore. Uh, cause I don't want, I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell either. And, uh, I just don't know how to figure this out. Uh, oddly enough that, uh, that spring of 2004, I Googled 
Cynthia Clausen. So -hmm. that's a good Baptist name. Mm -hmm. Uh, Arguably one of the best singer-songwriters the church has ever, ever had. And uh, I grew up listening to the music of Cynthia Clausen. I attended her concerts as, as, as a kid. And I, I Googled her in the spring of 2004, and the first headline that comes up was Cynthia Clausen sings for Dallas Homosexual Congregation. And I thought, there's no way. I know <laughs> Cynthia Clausen is a Southern Baptist to the T. She is the daughter of a Southern Baptist preacher. I, this cannot be the same person. Mm-hmm. So that concert had already happened, but there was another one on the horizon in Dallas. So I went back to this guy that I was dating. I said, look, this is going to be the craziest thing ever, but you and I have to go to Dallas and we need to go to church. And we're going to hear this concert by Cynthia Clausen at this one church. And then the next Sunday morning, we're going to go to Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas Mm -hmm. and, and attend church there. Well, the guest preacher was named uh, Dr. Steve Sprinkle, who happens to be on the faculty of Bright Divinity School. Well, I'd never heard of Bright. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, anyway, uh, we we hit off a fast friendship. And then from there, I discovered Royal Lane Baptist Church Uh because of a dear saint named Bruce Lowe. He wrote a letter Uh, It's called A Letter to Louise, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was on this website called God Made Me Gay, and I thought, who who is this person? And sure sure enough, one Sunday, he showed up at Cathedral of Hope and was introduced to a member as a member of Royal Lane, so then I had to hightail it back to Dallas and Amarillo (laughs) to go to Royal Lane Baptist Church to figure out what, who are these, who are these people like Cynthia? who can speak the language of home, but do so in new and affirming ways. I love that. And it was was God there at those church. Oh, oh, it was unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I remember at Cathedral of Hope, they take communion every, every Sunday. And I remember my boyfriend at the time walking up to the altar and Mm -hmm. receiving communion together. Mm. That, that was, incredibly powerful for me uh and at cathedral of hope in particular which is a church of about 90 percent lgbtq people and it's a mega church uh thousands of members i've never heard a church sing like that mm-hmm. in worship mm-hmm. and and if you think about that church's history living through the aids crisis the fact that they are still alive and thriving and have a dynamic church. They sing because of what they've been through mm-hmm. and what they have known. And so I, I imagine if, if we could go back and hear the people of the Exodus sing, it would be like the people of Cathedral of Hope and Worship. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just never experienced anything like that before. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Royal Lane uh, was very much in the Baptist context and framework. Um, and from there, uh, I learned about Broadway, but never attended. Uh, and long, long story short, I 
moved to Tyler, Texas, taught choral music at the community college there. Cynthia Clawson came and did a concert with my kids. With oh, my, my wow. Choir. Wow, what a, what a treat. And then, so seven years after I went to Cathedral of Hope that Sunday, I finally bit the bullet and went to seminary. <laughs> and, uh, and three years later, I was ordained, and Cynthia Clawson sang at my ordination. Oh, my gosh. And so full circle. Yeah, yeah full circle. Full circle. And Absolutely. The, one of the most profound moments was so her husband is Reagan Courtney, who was the lyricist for the hymn In Remembrance of Me. Mm-hmm. So that was. And that's like my favorite hymn of all time. I, it's, it's so beautiful. And no one, people don't do it. Why don't churches? It's I, hard because it's hard. That's why. We, we do it every chance we can get. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm coming. Uh, well, come, come on. So he was with Cynthia at my ordination, and Cynthia is at the piano singing in remembrance of me. Oh, wow. gosh. And Reagan Courtney comes forward, and I, and I take a piece of bread and put it in his hand and say, this is God's body. Mm. So. Wow. That's amazing. You know, it's interesting, as you were describing um, uh, that first experience at Cathedral of Hope and, and your partner at the time, um, you know, receiving communion and just the feelings and the emotions, it's almost as though it's parallel to kind of what the entire world is feeling now coming out of, a, well, at least here in the States, coming out of a pandemic. It's like, this feels right but it also feels wrong because of our past experience, because of what we have gone through. And, you know, not to equate the two, but, you know, the church has for so long uh, just done a disservice uh, and, and in a very sinful way, in my opinion, treatment of our LGBTQ uh, brothers and sisters. And so when they begin to experience this opening and welcoming and, and then eventually affirming uh, you know, atmosphere and environment within church, it can mess with your mind a little bit. But we're getting there. And so I'm really glad that you shared that story with us. So tell us a little bit about your ministry now. So you are, you, know, you went to seminary and now you're a pastor. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I am the first one in my family to leave the state of Texas since we arrived in 1840. And I had no intention of leaving the great state of Texas um, and was not sure exactly where to locate Ohio on a map. Um, But here was this congregation that said, we think you look like a pastor to us. Mm. And up to that point in time, uh, so, well, let me back up. After, in November 2016, yes, November 2016, we remember it well. Um, after some events that happened that month, I decided I needed to go back into search and call, which is the match.com Mm-hmm. equivalent of how disciple churches call their pastors. <laughs> it's not the most effective, but it can work. And, and from that time to when I was called here, I received 16 rejection letters from congregations. So I had 16 rejections before the first yes. Mm-hmm. 
And, and this church is in Rust Belt, Ohio. We're in a town of less than 60,000 people. This church has never been through um, an open and affirming process. They have never taken a vote. At the time, there was one openly gay person here as an active member, but he did not attend with his partner. So this is a 99% heterosexual church. Right. Wow. And so when the, when the call process started in the interview, um, I would always kind of wait to the very end. And there's always that question, is there anything you, that hasn't been said that you think needs to be said? And I would always say, yes, you need to know, and I need to know that you know mm -hmm. that I'm openly gay. And we need to be able to talk about that. And we, we don't have to do that now, but just so you know that my cards are on the table, uh, here they are. And, and usually that ended the conversation. There were no more interviews. Right. But this, this congregation in Ohio said, well, you haven't told us anything we don't already know. So I thought, oh, good. Uh, that's that's encouraging. Yeah. So we had um, we had good generative conversations about like in the interview process, like would this church ever fly a rainbow flag? And if you'll call me, but won't put up a flag, that says something. If you'll put up a flag, but won't call me, that says something. So we had really good conversation around that and. And what we figured out was that we can think well together. Mm. And so the, the church said, well, you know, we don't, want, we don't want you to preach about being gay. I said, okay, uh, I, I'll make you a deal. Your former pastor, who was here for a third of a century, um, is a woman. Mm -hmm. And I will preach about being gay as much as she talked about being a woman mm. and then they said oh we didn't think about it like that <laughs> so, i so, love you know, that it, though. that's great it's an, it's an educated moment where where they don't see the my, my predecessor janet mm -hmm. was is female and and right. that it, that was her difference and so how to claim that difference but now there's there is such a bedrock of trust between the church and me that we're able we can talk about anything and it is it's beautiful and so our our uh you know the congregation is still trying to figure out what what it what this part of our identity means sure. and it's also a little bit of a shell shock too because this church doesn't have the trauma of being in the Bible Belt, right, right, right. So that's, um, I, I guess that is. You could say that's trauma I brought, brought with me, but it doesn't fit here because that's not the context or the culture. So that's well, a little different, you know. And Nathan, I think that's where we're all hoping to get to that point where it just is. It's not an issue that a minister is, you know, gay, uh, lesbian, uh, trans. That they're just they're you know, just an individual who have, uh, has a calling upon their life and wants to serve the church and the church 
acknowledges that calling and it's secondary, kind of like what you were saying. You know, nobody really thought about their previous pastor being a woman. Um, you know, of course, if that were to occur in other regions of the, of the United States, that might be a little bit different. But we're all trying to get to that point of recognizing uh, God's uh, ability to work within anybody and to call anybody for, uh, for ministry, uh, especially within the local church. And I get a sense that I'm, or at least maybe it's too hopeful that there's a there's tide the tide is turning on this. Um, you know, last week we visited with Reverend June Joplin, who came out last year identifying as a transgender female. Uh, earlier in the year, we reported from the Public Religion uh, Research Institute that 76 percent of respondents said that they supported laws that would protect gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people against discrimination in jobs, public accommodations, and housing, and to dive a little deeper in that, the white, even white Protestants were starting to see some increases, uh, even within evangelicalism. So do you think the tide is turning when it comes to the acceptance and affirmation of LGBTQ plus persons? Without a doubt. Good. Without a doubt. I mean, you can look at... Uh, I mean, Pete Buttigieg was a candidate for president of the United States. Now, that being said, uh, the, the diversity within the LGBTQ community is, is wide and beautiful. And those of us who are white, cisgender, and male are at the top of that privilege heap. So it's changing for us first. That does not mean that it is changing for everybody at the same speed. Right. So a trans woman of color does not have the privilege that I do. And so uh, just like uh, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked, when will you be satisfied when there are uh, one number of women uh, need there be on the Supreme Court for you to be satisfied? And she said, when there are nine. Mm -hmm. um, the same is true for uh, LGBTQ community. And until the trans woman of color is fully welcomed, affirmed, and hired, I, I'm not. I'm not content. There you go. So it's it. The tide is turning, and may it continue uh, to do so. I love that. So when you talk to people about welcoming and affirming LGBTQ plus Christians into the church, what do you find most effective, especially for those people that I'm not talking to the ones at the way far other end of the spectrum, but maybe the ones that are sort of creeping our way? Yeah. So relationship is the key. Yeah. There was a woman here in the, in the church, and I met her early on. Um, she lived in a, uh, wellness care facility and she just, she told me flat out from the beginning, you are against the Bible. And I, I said, okay, I am familiar with this interpretation, uh, of scripture and I'm not here to change your mind. And so that kind of cut the immediate tension but i just went and visited her as 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 often as i could 
And then I remember one day she uh, she was hospitalized and I got to go up to her hospital room and and she just held out her hand and and asked me to take her hand. I was like, ah, now this is something new. And so for 45 minutes, she did not let go of my hand. And at the end of our conversation, she said, Pastor, there's something I want you to know. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in our church. And I believe in you. And you could have mopped me off the floor after that, after that moment. Um, And had had our first visit been like, well, let me tell you, do you know this story? You know, uh, it's like you, there's that great quote about Anne Lamont, uh, grace meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. Mm -hmm. The the pastor uh, who is on the margins also has to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that can be very, very difficult because there is the the context for trauma is is present. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have to know that going in to a situation that this may be hurtful, harmful even. Sure. And at least for me, to, pre- to, to go and prepare for that, knowing that, and having a sense of identity and personhood not based on the outcome of this conversation that I'm about to have, mm-hmm. then, then I'll, I'm going to be okay on the other side of it, I think. So, uh, but, but yeah, I think meeting, uh, at least with this, this person, um, uh, yeah, the chance to meet her where where she was, and then just to accompany her along the journey and let her set the pace. Do you think it helps to not be related to the person? Oh no, no. Okay, who, <laughs> which I call the family of origin. Uh, you know, I I am more patient with my church members than I am members of my own family. Yeah. Um, my partner and I've been together for 10 and a half years. We have never been invited home to my family. Um, and uh, that's, that's strange. That's, that's, that's mm-hmm. difficult. His family is perfectly fine. Right. They're also not particularly religious. Sure. Uh, so um, funny how that happens. Yeah, right, right. So uh, my, my family, the religious ones are, are the most um, uh, have the most borders. Uh, but, but yeah, and I, I think that's just the nature of families. Uh, it's yeah. really hard to be the one responsible for leading your family to uh, new understanding when you're the person being dissected on the table. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I mean, and and that goes without saying on other issues as well. Um, 
you know, when you're you're seen as by the family at least by the as the black sheep of the family or someone who is different from the rest of the family, thinks differently, votes differently, has you know a different perspective on scripture, uh, it can become daunting, uh, and it you know, and sometimes it, it becomes even fatal from the standpoint that relationships are severed, and it's it's just it's very disappointing within families. Um, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, that I've been asking a lot of people lately, not and specifically about LGBTQ plus uh, Christians, but also about other people who find themselves in the minority within the church. Because a lot of times there is an indictment on progressive Christians, especially those who are cisgender, uh, you know, especially white males, females, who try to advocate for LGBT Christians, but sometimes I think we get it wrong. And so what are we missing when it comes to being more authentic and genuine advocates for LGBTQ persons? When I lived in Fort Worth, several churches organized for, in a very ecumenical and beautiful way for World AIDS Day. And uh, that's, that's December 1st, and we, uh, we did this for a few years. And the first planning meeting we had i was the only gay person in the room Mm -hmm. and everyone else was heterosexual and i did not say this at the time but this was the thought in my mind i had just gotten a routine HIV test. It's just part of practice. Mm -hmm. And how many of you have ever had to do that and then wait three to five days for the results? Mm -hmm. And then I think that would have shifted the consciousness of the room to saying, We are talking about people instead of welcoming the presence of another. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's, I cannot remember who said this, but if you're not part of the conversation, then you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's what the the white mainline progressive liberal. church has has gotten wrong let here let us do this to you let us do this for you and we we have ideas that that need to that need to come to the fore and we're all about partnership by by all means we can do this work together but um there's there's a dimensional quadrant that i sometimes use there's there's two and four versus by and with. Mm-hmm. So when we're in the positive con- uh, quadrant of that XY axis, we are doing things by and with the people uh, we, we're seeking to serve. Yeah. Um, when, when it's in the negative 
uh, it's we're doing this to you and we're doing the, this for you. You just didn't know you needed it yet. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's white folk agenda. And, yeah. and I, even as a gay person, I, I'm, I, <laughs> I am a white person and I function in the world as a white cisgender male afforded all these privileges. I only, when I play the card, which is a choice, am, am, I, am I a person on the margin? So mm. what, what the church, the white liberal church is going to have to discern, and we didn't figure this out with Martin Luther King. We were, we were wrong then, and we're, we're still wrong about it, that we, we need to amplify, walk alongside, or let's go to the back of the bus. Mm-hmm so that we are following the leadership and ascribing power to the voices that are on the margins. Then I think we'll be making some steps toward justice and and shalom. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for spending such some great time with us this week, uh, Good Faith Weekly. Uh, It's been a joy listening to you and your insights and intellect and your pastor's heart. We really appreciate you. Before we let you go, though, Autumn has one last question for you. I do. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about today and, um, you know, in light of your beautiful ministry and story that you shared today, what is your more to tell? There is always more to tell and more at work within the scripture, within the biblical canon, within stories that are ancient, but in telling them they are made new. David and Goliath, the Ethiopian eunuch, Jesus. There's always more to tell. And as we become better storytellers, we will move toward the future that God wants and ultimately will have. Beautiful, beautiful, loved it. Reverend Nathan Russell is a senior pastor of Washington Avenue Christian Church in Ohio, and he is an absolute delight. So if you ever find yourself traveling through Ohio, stop at his church and listen to one of his sermons. You can log on uh, to their website as well, and I believe that is W-A-C-C-E-L. Uh, Y-R-I-A.org. <laughs> so uh, we'll put that in the show description uh, so that you can log on and, and learn more about his church. But thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. We appreciate you each and every week. Until next week, keep living good faith. <laughs>